Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Imagine you take a job with a Catholic healthcare system because you think you'll be able to practice medicine in accord with your faith, but then are fired for doing so. This is exactly what happened to Megan Kreft, a physician assistant from Portland, Oregon. In 2019, Megan accepted a position with Providence Medical Group. However, she was reprimanded and ultimately fired by her clinic because she would not violate her Catholic beliefs or her professional judgment in terms of patient care. Megan, along with her husband Isaac, join me today to discuss the challenges she faced, how she is responding, and why she is speaking out now. Megan Kreft and Isaac Kreft, welcome to our Bioethics on Air podcast. Hi, Joe. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. This is, uh, I have to say, this is the first time we've ever had a husband-wife duo on Bioethics on Air. So you guys are breaking new ground. And, uh, and, I, and I'm thinking we may hear from Justin as well uh, throughout the interview. And, uh, <laughs> and Megan, who's Justin? Justin is our um, little boy who will be turning three in just a matter of five days. Very good. And you have another one on the way, I, th- I believe, as well. Yep. Um, expecting in 10 days, um, little Gianna. So baby sister. Justin's been telling everyone that he's about to turn three and his birthday present is a sister. <laughs> Pretty excited. At least for now. We'll see, we'll see if that changes. I was going to say, I wonder if he's going to be say that, saying that in a couple of years, but yeah, but, <laughs> but, but whatever. So I'm, I'm, we may hear from Justin throughout the throughout this interview today. So, so Megan, I ask this of every new guest on our podcast, and this is your first time with us. Maybe it won't be your last, um, but if you could please tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education and your work experience that led up to your your position at Providence Medical Group. Yeah, happy to. So I was born and raised here in Oregon and um, am a cradle Catholic. I was interested in pursuing a career in medicine from a pretty early age. My mom is actually a physical therapist. I had enjoyed science in my academic time, and I was looking for a career where I could help others. I ended up attending the University of Portland, which is a Holy Cross University here in Oregon, for my undergrad, and that's where I met my husband, Isaac. In college, I was involved in a variety of Um, different groups, but specifically um, enjoyed campus ministry and being a part of the Voice for Life Club, which was the pro-life club on campus. I ended up receiving my bachelor's in psychology and minored in both neuroscience and music. So after having explored a variety of healthcare professions, I decided to pursue graduate school and obtain my master's degree to become a physician assistant and ended up attending Oregon Health and Science University, also known as OHSU here in Portland. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen the practice of medicine as a vocational calling to serve others, as well as to accompany patients on their journey towards health and healing. I also had this understanding and recognition that there was a need for medical providers that respect the whole person and all of human life from conception and natural death. The PA profession was particularly appealing to me for several reasons. I have pretty diverse interests when it comes to medicine, and so I was drawn to the flexibility that PAs have in their ability to work in Most healthcare fields, really ranging from primary care to dermatology, even surgical specialties such as orthopedic or cardiothoracic surgery. 
Yeah, we used also, to see them all over the place in the hospitals. So. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. and you know something I really also liked about the profession and its founding was that it was founded to increase access to medical care, particularly yeah. um, to patients in underserved or rural areas. So again, part of the mission of serving um, everyone and increasing access to care was really appealing, and I felt like the profession was very mission driven. Right. I also liked that the profession was inherently collaborative. We operate as um, providers within the context of a healthcare team, which I think can really enhance patient care. Mm-hmm. So prior to starting at OHSU, I did assume that I would face some challenges as a medical student. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> might be an under- understatement here. Yeah, especially in Oregon. Yeah, especially in Oregon, <laughs> uh, you know, because I was committed to practicing medicine in a way that was consistent with my faith. And I knew that there were many widespread widespread or best practices in secular medicine that were in conflict with Catholic moral teaching. And that likely in my training that there would be an expectation for me to leave my faith at the door and not allow it to be a conflict of interest that, say, might interfere with patient care. So definitely, you know, you mentioned Oregon has a reputation and OHSU in particular um, is known for being a big proponent of physician-assisted suicide, oh, yes. term termination of pregnancies. And so I really did truly come face-to-face with the culture of death in my medical training at OHSU, both in the didactic or academic sense. You know, I, I would say I endured lectures on the utility of abortion and contraception. I remember one professor in particular making fun of natural family planning and its archaic nature and ineffectiveness and another lecture on the benefits of physician-assisted suicide and how Oregon had been a pioneer in this. And then um, it continued during my clinical rotations in grad school. This is where I first tangibly encountered bioethical issues, such as patients requesting contraception, sterilization, and gender transitioning services. I remember even um, coming across one patient who was in elementary school who was going through hormonal replacement for gender transitioning. Yeah. Yeah. So I even had, um, during my clinical rotations in grad school, I actually had one family medicine preceptor who voiced that he did not want to work with me due to my unwillingness to provide or participate in certain patient care. So that kind of prompted me working with OHSU's Title IX office to create a formal religious accommodation, which allowed me to be excused from participating in care that violated my religious beliefs and you know, not only my religious beliefs, but also my understanding of what was best medical care right. for patients. Yeah. So as you can imagine, I was pretty darn burnt out after PA school and decided it would be pretty much impossible for me to work in a primary care or women's health setting due to just the prevalence of the bioethical issues and dilemmas that um, felt like were constantly coming up with the in those fields um, during my education. Um, but, you know, it was really too bad that I came to that conclusion looking back because these are really fields of medicine that need providers who are committed yeah. to providing life-affirming care Absolutely. that ultimately upholds the sanctity of human life. But personally, it just felt too difficult. I was too burned out. I had a young family. And so I was initially set on working in a medical um, specialty. I, I actually ended up, you know, <laughs> I will go into this a little bit, but I ended up opening my job search up to primary care and found a position at a local Catholic hospital system. So through Providence Health and Services, which is part of the greater um, Providence St. Joseph Health System. And I figured, you know, although this is primary care, at least they had to tolerate my insistence on providing life (laughs) medical care. 
Um, I mean, that's like, I thought the bar was fairly low there, but um, <laughs> I ended up, you know, I, I actually growing up kind of a little bit of background. I grew up considering Providence, my, my healthcare system. You know, I was right. cradle Catholic born in the area, very familiar with Providence. I was born at Providence St. Medical uh, or Providence St. Vincent Hospital. And my mom, who I mentioned as a physical therapist, worked for Providence for over 20 years. So really felt like I had that connection both from um, the Catholic background um, and my personal experience with the local hospital system where I had received great, great care. Um, So I ended up getting a job offer in family medicine um, for a PA position with Providence Medical Group. Um, in Sherwood, which is a suburb of Portland, Oregon. So it's a primary care outpatient clinic. And um, I remember the interview. Um, It was great. I had the opportunity to meet clinic staff and leadership and other providers. And I really got, um, felt really great about the culture there, their commitment to great patient care, as well as their enthusiasm for investing in me as a new um, medical provider. So I was actually, you know, um, I say we're pretty detail-oriented people, both Isaac and I are both pretty type A. And so we, you know, we're going through all the paperwork when when I had gone uh, gotten this formal job offer. And we were delighted to find a section in my employment contract, the, or at least the proposed employment contract that stated that Providence Health and Services was indeed a Catholic hospital system and thus required my adherence to Catholic moral teaching and the USCCB's ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services. Um, and so it was like, oh my gosh, this is a godsend. Like <laughs> if I had any questions, it was like a big neon sign saying like, here, here you go. Um, and so for, for your listeners who aren't familiar with ERDs, um, you know, I'm assuming many are, but they're a document that provide both authoritative guidance on different moral issues faced in Catholic healthcare and outline standards of behavior. This is the, the document's own verbiage for what the purpose, uh, what purpose they serve. And so in reading this, it almost seemed too good to be true. Uh, But I accepted the position and was really just looking forward to um, starting my medical practice. Yeah. So Isaac, what were your thoughts about Megan working for Providence? Sure. So I recognize that Megan had a difficult time dealing with the culture of death at OHSU. So at the other side of it, I thought it made a lot of sense that Megan would want to stick to a medical specialty for clinical practice instead of primary care, since they seemed to have a much lower incidence of the objectionable practices going on in them. Mm -hmm. But I encouraged Megan to take her time with the job search, to keep an open mind about where she would work, and to look for a good fit, even if it were uh, to be in primary care somewhere. And when the opportunity for Providence showed up, I thought, You know, it's worth considering if there is a place where the practice of pro-life Catholic family medicine would be tolerated, you'd think it'd be, you know, at Providence, right? The Catholic healthcare system. Mm -hmm. I had no expectation, though, that Providence was a bastion of Catholic healthcare. I I figured in some ways it would resemble a secular healthcare institution like the one Megan had just graduated from. Um, But when Megan received her job offer, we considered the great location. It was actually in her old hometown. Uh, the We considered the institution's Catholic identity. It seemed great in many respects. And when we reviewed the offer, we found that it required Megan's adherence to the ERDs. Yeah, she mentioned that. And I thought, that. oh, this is, this is terrific. Yeah. At this point, 
uh, we had become somewhat familiar with the ERDs and were delighted to see that Megan would actually be required by her employment contract to adhere to them if she were to take the job. I even mentioned at this point to Megan that if anyone were to give her grief about practicing Catholic medicine according to her conscience, she could lean on her employment contract as an authoritative basis for practicing in such a manner. For me, the employment contract eased a lot of my concerns regarding Megan working in a field such as family medicine. Right. Megan, tell us about your orientation day with Providence Medical Group. Yeah. So I accepted the position, like I mentioned, a family medicine PA position in January of 2019. And my orientation, which was my first day as an employee, was on March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation. Um, and I actually attended a general orientation for all the new Providence employees. So not just specific to Providence Medical Group, which I mentioned was kind of the outpatient um, part of the organization. So one of the topics it was interesting that was covered pretty extensively was Providence's mission and Catholic heritage. This presentation was given by the chief mission integration officer at the time. You know, we learned about the organization's founding, being founded by the Sisters of Providence in the mid-1800s, and we talked extensively about Providence's mission, which is stated as expressions of God's healing love witnessed through the ministry of Jesus, we are steadfast in serving all, especially those who are poor and vulnerable. We also learned about um, the organization's core values of compassion, dignity, justice, excellence, and integrity. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I haven't shared the bulk of my story yet. However, you can consider this a teaser or a little bit of foreshadowing, but the core value that stood out to me was that of integrity. And um, the organization assigns a scripture verse to each of its core values and then um, expounds on it by kind of describing what that looks like. And so the scripture verse that was assigned to integrity was 1 John 3.18, and it states, let us love not merely with words or speech, but with actions and truth. And kind of the description for integrity as a core value within Providence was we hold ourselves accountable to do the right things for the right reasons. We speak the truth with courage and respect. And so these statements to me seemed impressively countercultural, actually. They were explicitly religious. They talked about speaking truth and even imitating Christ. I do remember, though, that one of the Providence executives at the orientation did point out that they acknowledged that not all employees of the organization are Catholic or Christian. And so they actually encouraged each of us as individuals to replace the name of Jesus, as stated in its mission, with someone who we looked up to. Um, and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I was a little taken off guard by that. Um, but uh, then the orientation continued on. And actually, near the end, the mission integration officer extended an invitation to new employees to reach out to him anytime if we had ideas of how to better integrate Providence's mission within the organization. Little did I know that I would be taking him up on his offer <laughs> later. Um, so I'll go into that a little bit later. Right. All right. So orientation day happens and then you go to work in the clinic. So tell us a little bit about what you experienced in your work at the clinic. Yeah. So actually my first inclination that something might be awry, or I should say was awry, actually 
occurred before I started um, at Providence Medical Group Sherwood. In the onboarding process, one of the clinic administrators had emailed me a form to fill out that would list the in-office procedures that I plan to offer my patients, you know, ranging mm-hmm. from toenail removals to casting, yep. stitches, skin biopsies, and joint injections. However, on the list she provided, um, it also happened to contain a list of all the procedures the other clinic providers already offered patients. And this in- list included services such as IUD and exponent insertions, which are forms of hormonal contraception, yep. vasectomies, as well as the prescribing of the morning after pill or emergency contraception. Mm-hmm. I was actually pretty surprised how transparent and nonchalant the clinic was in sharing these services they provided, which were inconsistent with Catholic moral teaching and the ethical and religious directives. So I kind of moved on. I was like, well, I'm going to see my patients and, you know, I'm convicted in the way that I'm going to practice, you know, according to my faith, conscience, and even my employment contract. But within the first several weeks of clinical practice, there were several ethically questionable situations I encountered. Um, I had one physician recommend that I refer a patient for an abortion if she was unhappy with um, her positive pregnancy test. I had a patient um, asking wow. for a tubal ligation referral. And I became aware that the clinic had an effective contraceptive metric um, through Oregon Health Authority that intended to um, limit unplanned pregnancies by putting women on birth control. Um, so again, kind of surprising. Um, but it was actually around this time that I reached out to um, to the NCBC via your ethics consult service, seeking advice on how to navigate both simultaneously practicing medicine in this setting, which was an ostensibly Catholic clinic, while also obeying my conscience. So it was at this time that you were actually the ethicist that happened to be on consult duty that day. Yes, I was. A a day that will live in infamy. (laughs) For better or for worse, (laughs) you were on duty. I was. Yes, I was. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I had, I knew the teachings of the church regarding the sanctity of human life. And I was pretty familiar, you know, um, with the content of the ARDs, but I was really trying to seek advice on how to integrate Catholic teaching and bioethics in a really practical way in my personal interactions with patients, as well as my interactions with clinic administrators and um, staff. I knew that in following the dictates of my faith and conscience, I wasn't going to be providing services such as sterilization or contraception. However, I was looking for improved techniques on how to share this in a compassionate, honest, and professional way to my patients who were really entrusting themselves to my care. So this is actually, you know, in dialogue with you, the first time that the bioethical concept of different levels of cooperation with evil and the morally relevant distinction between transfer of care versus patient referral was explained to me. And really, that was a game changer when it came to knowing how to navigate these situations. Yeah. And we do the, we have these conversations actually quite often with, with healthcare professionals. They'll call in with, with similar questions. You know, you, you just happen to be, you know, you, you happen to, to email in or call in on a day I was on duty, but we, you know, we deal with this all the time. So yeah. And they're, they're, they're huge concerns. So with that in mind, how did you first uh, raise concerns to Providence and, and what kind of response did you receive from the system? Yeah. So one of my first conversations, um, as I mentioned earlier, was um, me reaching out to the chief mission integration officer um, about one week after starting at Providence. And to him, I mentioned my concern 
about the discrepancy between Providence's mission, its Catholic identity, and the expectation for providers, such as myself, to conform our medical practice to the ERDs with what was actually occurring in my clinic. And so his response was actually pretty simple. Um, It was simply that Providence doesn't police its providers and that the provider-patient relationship is private and sacred. My next thought, though, when he mentioned this was, why even require adherence to the ERDs and employment contracts if there's no intention of holding anyone accountable to them? So that was really the first um, interaction I had with um, anyone within the organization, um, explicitly expressing my concerns and really trying to seek a way to move forward and reconcile this discrepancy. Um, I ended up then having a conversation with my clinic manager at Providence Medical Group, Sherwood, and, you know, just told her, hey, you know, I intend to practice medicine um, and serve my patients in a way that's consistent with the dictates of my faith and conscience. Um, but really, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought, I don't really know why I need to have this meeting. I thought it would go without saying, but I was actually surprised. She was fairly receptive to this and ultimately said, you know, she wouldn't want me doing anything that I wasn't comfortable with. Um, however, she recommended, you know, looking into me getting a formal religious accommodation, which would outline my practice preferences. Again, I was pretty confused why I, as a Catholic, would need a religious accommodation to practice medicine at a Catholic clinic. Yeah, um, that's that's a tough question, right there. It's like, hmm. yeah, I, hmm. I, I was, I was, yeah, I was confused. But anyways, you know, we overall had a good conversation and um, kind of going from there, she recommended that I subsequently talk to my clinic's medical director, as well as get in touch with um, the province ethics department and speak to one of the Providence ethicists. So I ended up um, making an appointment with one of the Providence ethicists and mentioned to him that I was surprised to discover that my clinic offered many services that were contrary to ERDs. I figured you know, being an ethicist, he was probably very familiar with ERDs more so than myself. And so that's kind of the, the jumping off point for this conversation with him. He did say to me that he was pretty shocked that a provider would recommend an abortion referral and acknowledge this was a big, this was a big issue. Um, but you know, I kind of learned about the structure of the organization and its Catholicity. And he explained to me this concept or the existence of a board of sponsors, which he stated was responsible for preserving the integrity of Providence's Catholic identity. And, you know, I listed some of the services that were occurring and he told me that the board of sponsors supported Providence's desire to provide comprehensive women's health care and allow certain procedures such as tubal ligations, and vasectomies to be performed in Providence's operating rooms if a provider and patient came to the agreement that these procedures were in the best interest of the patient. You know, uh, this this sounded very similar to the answer I had received from Mission Integration. You know, we don't police our providers. The provider-patient relationship is sacred. And, you know, as our conversation, I had several meetings with him, as our conversation unfolded, I was informed by the Providence ethicist that tubal ligations could be justified for women who couldn't afford more children, you know, seeing this as a form Mm -hmm. of social justice. um, Oh, yes. um, Yeah, I was, I was actually, um, when I asked about the effective contraceptive metric that the organization was participating in, he told me that the board of sponsors had actually approved cooperating with Oregon Health Authority's metric, although it seemed a little bit controversial because they they thought, well, this is actually related to prenatal care by planning for pregnancy. So we're not going to focus on 
contraception. We're we're going to focus on that. Really, this is sort of related to prenatal care, and it's good for mom and baby to plan for pregnancy. Right. Um, Actually, Megan, can you can you talk about that metric for a bit? Just just explain exactly what that metric is. Yeah. So the Oregon um, Health Authority, and this is particular; these metrics are particularly for Medicare and Medicaid patients, I believe. But the Oregon Health Authority has a variety of kind of um, practice advisory metrics um, that they see as, you know, being good for public health and overall patient care and outcomes. And they range from things such as, um, you know, blood pressure or diabetes management. Um, You know, some of these metrics could be reached based on, um, you know, various lab values for patients, like what their hemoglobin A1C level is or how well controlled their blood pressure is, to metrics like the effective contraceptive metric which encourages a certain percent. I don't recall, but they have a benchmark for, you know, the organization is doing well in a metric if it meets, you know, a certain percentage of patients that fall within this age category and um, insurance coverage um, category. And then that's kind of um, the the organization or organizations who participate in this um, then get this feedback and can find areas where they're doing really well in terms of um, these best practice advisories and areas that they could improve. And ostensibly, they're um, depending on which metric is um, uh, encouraged or the focus for a given year that they could receive um, some um, financial incentive for that. Hmm. So Providence um, yeah. made money if they met this metric. Yeah, I will. I will say the when I was there, it was not one of the um, the metrics that had funding attached to it for that year. I forget. I believe it was you know diabetes management or blood pressure control, cardiovascular uh, mitigating cardiovascular risk factors, but it was in a bundle of. Uh, metrics, but you know, really, although um, the metrics involved meeting certain benchmarks, it was smaller populations such as medic Medicaid. But we were encouraged, you know, because most providers aren't looking at every insurance that you know right, exactly. uh, provider or that patients have to kind of um, try to meet these metrics across the board, um, because then we would be capturing those patient populations where it did matter. Right. Um, so yeah, so I actually ended up also. Uh, and talking to the ethicists, asking about what current um, natural family planning education and services were offered within the organization. And I also expressed my desire to receive support um, in being trained in them and providing them um, in my practice. And he he acknowledged that the ERDs, especially ERD 52, do call Catholic healthcare organizations to provide NFP services. But he commented because since this was clinical, Providence would need to organize, probably need to organize a study group and get clinician buy-in prior to offering these <laughs> services. Yeah. 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 So then, you know, moving, moving along. So that was my conversation with the ethics department, again, multiple conversations. Um, but then I um, really kind of the, the turning point was my conversation with my medical director of the clinic, specifically at Providence Medical Group Sherwood. So I ended up speaking to her and kind of expressed the same sentiments and my conviction to practicing um, uh, medical care consistent with my faith and conscience, as well as the organization's um, mission and Catholic identity. And she asked me for a comprehensive list of the services I would not provide. Really, I thought it was, you know, the simplest way to do this was just to direct her to the ethical and religious directives. You know, I was like, that this has already sense. been written. <laughs> this has already it's been right written. here. It's right here. And, you know, 
again, kind of on a side note, you know, I was thinking to myself, I'm unsure why these providers are unaware of this document. Like it, it's like, it's the first time it was ever mentioned, you know, which I assumed was probably also part of their employment contract. So really the, the um, service that I objected to that I think caused the biggest red flag was um, hormonal contraception. You know, my medical director said contraception is a huge part of women's health and primary care. She even told me that she was concerned about patient satisfaction scores and clinics rating, clinic ratings being negatively affected by me not being willing to offer these services. And then she introduced me to the concept of um, the one key question expectation, which basically is that if any woman of childbearing age comes into the clinic for any medical issue, no matter what she's being seen for, she should be asked um, if she wants to get pregnant in the next year. And if the patient says, no, I don't want to get pregnant, then the expectation is that the provider, um, so me in this instance, would counsel them on their birth control options. I told my medical director that I would not be recommending or prescribing contraception um, to my patients. So I would say that this was kind of a turning point um, in, in my time working in the clinic. So I think I already know the answer to this question, but kind of summarize a little bit. Were you allowed in your clinic to practice medicine in accord with the with the ERDs or not? Yeah. So, um, so actually, uh, a little background. So shortly after this conversation with my medical director, you know, I alerted mission integration of my concerns. I had talked to my clinic manager. I had spoken to the ethics department. Um, so shortly after this conversation, um, the entire clinic of Providence Medical Group Sherwood was notified that I was prohibited from seeing female patients between the ages of 12 and 50 because I was Catholic and didn't offer contraception. So this was explicitly stated to the entire clinic. You in, know, a Catholic, in, a, in a clinic owned by a Catholic healthcare system. Yes. It said I was Megan's Catholic and she doesn't offer contraception. And so she's having um, scheduling changes. Uh, <laughs> scheduling and, changes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so, um, um, you know, this is a population I obviously care a lot about, you know, as a, as a, as a young woman, as a mom, as Absolutely. a wife. And, um, you know, honestly, too, with my educa- my medical education, I'm qualified um, to treat patients from birth to death. Um, and so this was a huge, huge chunk of the population that, like I said, I was no longer able to see for any medical reason. So not just, you know, we're screening people to see if they want to come in for family planning or birth control. It was, we're going to rule out this, this demographic um, for Megan. So, you know, I came to realize... No longer able to see um, this population, women of childbearing age, and that it was on the account of how I would handle requests for contraception. So to me, it became pretty apparent. It seemed apparent that the clinic management was really only okay with positive messages about contraception being relayed to patients, which to me was a red flag and seemed to compromise informed consent, which is super important. I mean, I know if I'm prescribing a blood or, you know, recommending a blood pressure medication. I'm going through the pros, the cons, what are the potential side effects, you know, call the office. If you start noticing this, you know, look, you know, monitor your blood pressure closely, you know, all of that. And so this was you know, concerning. And so, you know, I was told, okay, can't see women of childbearing age, but I was still, you know, um, it's a population I cared about. I was still really hoping to pursue training and education to be able to offer NFP um, services within the organization. And so I sought continuing medical education um, approval through my clinic um, to attend the education program through the St. Paul VI 
Institute in Omaha, Nebraska. I was looking to um, become a Creighton model fertility care practitioner, as well as a NAPRO technology medical consultant. And so as a provider with Providence, part of our compensation package is to receive um, time off for continuing medical education, as well as a um, a stipend to help fund it as continuing medical education is a requirement for us to stay up on our, uh, our medical license. And so when I approached my medical director, who was the one who needed to approve this, um, Always. she said that she denied, had to deny my request because it wasn't relevant to my job specifically because I didn't see women of childbearing age, <laughs> um, which is kind of this like circular, <laughs> you yeah. know, I think, I'd, I think I'd even said like, well, I care about this population and I'm actively seeking out ways to, um, you know, increase my competency in providing exceptional care and diverse services <laughs> to this group. Right. And it was kind of end of story um, at that point. <laughs> Um, so I ended up, you know, um, attending actually another orientation. This was several months into my time at Providence, specifically for new provider training. So the first orientation I mentioned about the first day was a general orientation. Um, you know, providers are there, staff, billing, coding, manage, new management, um, kind of across the whole Providence Health and Services system. And then all the providers, so physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners, um, I think, you know, physical therapists, nurse midwives, and such attend new provider training. And we're actually given at this training a physical copy of the ethical and religious directives. I was actually surprised. I was like, okay, so I'm not making this up. I'm not the only person that acknowledges that this document exists. And so all providers within Providence Medical Group did receive a hard copy of the ERDs. There was actually a presentation given at this training by one of the mission integration directors um, on the topic of Catholic healthcare and the ERD. So I, you know, I buckled up and was ready to, ready to hear what he had to say. And um, he called out specifically three areas that are addressed in the ERDs. He mentioned abortion, physician-assisted suicide, and contraception. And so when he started talking about abortion, he said. You know, Providence doesn't provide abortions, but providers can refer for them. Hmm. Um, for physician-assisted suicide, he said, Providence doesn't provide this service, but we also don't say we don't provide the service because we're a Catholic hospital system because that doesn't sound good. And then um, regarding contraception, he said, so the church prohibits it. But Providence understands that there are great areas in medicine and Providence will never police our providers in their medical practice. He said that Providence trusts that providers will make the best decisions for their patients because they know the needs in this area better than Providence does. Again, sounds very familiar to several other conversations that I had previously had. So there really seemed to be this consistent narrative within the organization that immoral services could in fact be tolerated because they're part of a private relationship between medical providers and their patients. Yep. However, this didn't seem consistent with how I was being treated. Here I was, I was being told, you know, effectively you're unable to use, I was, I was unable to use my medical judgment to care for my patients, um, specifically women of childbearing age in a way that showed them respect, compassion, and care for their health, you know, mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of stuff. I mean, we could we could go off on any one of these topics and do another hour long podcast on it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna refrain myself and, and restrain <laughs> myself here. So, with that 
background. What circumstances contributed to your being fired by Providence? Yeah. So during my transition to no longer seeing patients who are women of childbearing age, I already had a young female patient on my schedule who was scheduled for a follow-up for a um, medical issue that I had previously seen her for. And this medical issue was unrelated to women's health or family planning. And so um, I was actually given permission um, to see her for this follow-up to allow for continuity of care. You know, it was a follow-up. It should be a quick visit. It was totally unrelated to any of these, what you think would be bioethical issues. But at the end of the visit, this patient started crying and she brought up um, a request for the morning after pill. And I'll just start by saying, you know, this poor woman, I really felt for her. Like she broke down. She was very vulnerable and opening up about her concerns and um, her fears and, you know, I listened, I tried to offer her other assistance. I listened to her, but ultimately, you know, I said, I don't provide this service and I don't refer for emergency contraception in the morning after pill. Like I said, though, I offered her other assistance, you know, do you want to talk to somebody? I listened to her and I offered other services such as, you know, STD testing. She actually asked me um, if I didn't provide the morning after pill due to my personal beliefs or because a providence of a providence policy since it was a Catholic organization. And I had no issue telling this patient, this poor patient, that it was a providence policy because you know, this is something that's addressed in the ERDs. So when I, I left the exam room to um, put in some orders for patient tests for her, and I realized when I tried to submit the order that I couldn't. And this was because actually another provider in the clinic was currently in her patient chart and was actually currently prescribing the morning after pill to her under my visit. It wasn't even a separate visit. It was <laughs> under my visit. Same visit. Didn't talk to me about it at all, like before, during, after. Um, and it was just something that I that I observed. And um so a couple weeks later, I believe, I was called to a meeting um, with our clinic medical director, and then they brought in, you know, I knew the stakes were getting a little higher when um, the regional medical director was invited to attend the meeting as well. And um, this regional medical director has since been promoted to the chief medical officer for all of Providence Medical Group in Oregon. And I was told that I had traumatized the patient for not prescribing what she had requested and had done her harm and in turn broken the Hippocratic Oath. Um, you know, I, I, I acknowledge that the patient was distraught from the situation that she found herself in. You know, she was afraid, expressed fear of an untimely pregnancy, concern for STDs and the social implications of connecting with an ex-boyfriend. But I was being told that I had personally traumatized her and done her harm for not prescribing her the medication that she had requested. And so, you know, this got me thinking, most healthcare providers would acknowledge, I would say, that there are instances where in advocating for what's best for a patient's health, um, our recommendations might um, be in conflict with what a patient is requesting. Say a patient's requesting an increased opioid prescription dosage. Um, <laughs> Or um, it could be in conflict with their current lifestyle. You know, oftentimes we're counseling patients on weight loss, you know, changes in their diet or even smoking cessation. And oftentimes these patient encounters can leave patients feeling frustrated or even offended 
Um, and so situations in medicine occur quite regularly where I would say patients can likely have substantial negative feelings about an office visit, but the provider is nonetheless justified in making their clinical judgment and recommendation. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. And I was, I was um, in this meeting where, you know, this patient scenario was brought up about um, my refusal to um, prescribe the morning after pill. You know, I, I did bring up my obligation not to violate my conscience, my Catholic faith, or the ERDs, which I reminded um, <laughs> those I was speaking with was were in my employment contract. You know, at the end of the near the end of the meeting, the regional medical director mentioned that providers must sacrifice things all the time to serve our patients, and she, you know, mentioned like we sacrifice our schedules. So it seemed that the implication was that I had an obligation to set my faith and beliefs aside to serve my patients. Um, you know, around this time, this is when leadership expressed serious concerns regarding how I would handle and communicate with patients um, when they requested services that I didn't provide. And they explicitly expressed concern that patients would feel abandoned if they didn't get what they requested or at a minimum didn't know next steps to obtain their requested services from another provider or another clinic. Yeah. Huh. So then it sounds like um, a sticking point between you and the clinic management was, how should we say, maybe an assumption on their part that your refusal to provide or refer for certain circum uh, certain services, in this case, uh, Plan B or the morning after pill, that your that your refusal constituted patient abandonment. So is, is, yeah. is this the case? Yeah, absolutely. It was something that was repeatedly um, repeatedly brought up. Okay, so how then did you seek to to mitigate their concerns? Yeah, so um, I first off was never intending, or and I would never be okay with abandoning patients. You know, I wedded to to uh, the field of medicine to serve my patients, to accompany them, to help them, um, you know, reach better health and healing, mind, body, and spirit. And so this whole notion of abandoning patients, I find totally unacceptable as well. Um, so I'm right there with them. And so this was really, I think, a misunderstanding of my position and intent. Um, so really, when I was receiving help from you and from the National Catholic Bioethics Center, it became pretty apparent to me that there was a morally relevant distinction between what we call transferring the care of a patient um, and referring patients um, for immoral procedures. You know, I've known multiple other Catholic healthcare, excellent Catholic healthcare providers who personally objected to providing services such as abortion, contraception, sterilization, et cetera, in their medical practice. However, when I had inquired um, about how they you know, practically handled these requests in conversations with their patients, they said things like, you know, I tell my patient I don't prescribe hormonal contraception, but they can go to the front desk and schedule an appointment with one of my colleagues for an IUD insertion if they'd like, or I don't offer birth control, but I will let my medical assistant know that you would like birth control and my medical assistant can come in the room at the end of the visit and get you scheduled with another provider for next time. And so, you know, I was impressed that these providers had the courage to not personally offer services that conflicted with their faith, but their explanation of what they told patients just didn't really sit well with me. I couldn't, yep. couldn't explain it in precise bioethical terms. But I felt that those responses in some way condoned or facilitated the patient's reception of these immoral services. And, you know, later I learned that the, what was occurring here was referral. 
And, um, you know, I mentioned that was a game changer for me coming to this understanding um, through NCB's guidance and your guidance of the distinction between transfer of care versus referral. And so I'd highly recommend um, anyone read your NCBC document called Transfer of Care versus Referral, a Crucial Moral Distinction. And really these terms of what is transfer of care, what is referral, they're defined. Um, And so, you know, I mentioned that these providers, you know, their intent is really good, um, but that they were actually cooperating um, in what we call referral. And so for your listeners, referral, and this is from from your document, these are, (laughs) isn't this, I'm not making this up, you know, in moral terms is when um, the person who refuses to do the immoral procedure, so say in this case, a provider, um, directs the requesting person, a patient, to another individual or institution because the other individual or institution is known or believed to be willing to provide the immoral procedure in question. So the objector, so in this case, a provider, implicitly wills the requester, patient, um, the requester's accomplishment of the evil act. Also something that, you know, is mentioned in the document, which I think is important to note, is that the morality of the referral doesn't change even if it is required by the employer or even by state law. So the morality yeah, does not. That could be a big one. Those. Um, transfer, so referral is directive. Transfer of care, on the other hand, um, involves, you know, compassionate and pastoral ever, efforts to help patients and dialogue to help patients understand the harms of the immoral procedure. This could, you know, include the medical harms, the um, the spiritual harms, what what have you. And sure. this, you know, going through this process and having dialogue with patients is really an important part of informed consent. And so, you know, ultimately, since patients do have the freedom to choose what care they seek, um, providers can remind patients of their ability to seek care with another provider or clinic without um, directing them to a specific clinic or provider who they know are willing or believe to be willing to offer the immoral procedure. And so, you know, this was super helpful to understand. It was, you know, those bioethical terms that were elusive to me and these <laughs> concepts that seem to make so much sense. And, you know, the, these definitions, and I've heard people say this, but like these definitions can appear really arbitrary or pedantic, like you're splitting hairs here. However, if you think about it, when individual consciences are involved, and even from a faith perspective, referral is, is sinful and therefore harms one's relationship with God, it's a big deal. And we it should is. understand the crucial distinction between transfer of care and referral. So the next question is usually, okay, I get I get this from like a theoretical standpoint, bioethical, theological, philosophical, but what does this practically look like when it comes to taking care of patients who are serving from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of beliefs who have, you know, reasonable expectations to receive services such as, say, contraception or referrals for um, sterilization or physician-assisted suicide, and et cetera. And so really, um, there are several transfer of care options on the practical level. So, you know, say a patient requests a service I don't provide or asks me if they could see someone else or obtain a referral. Like I mentioned, this is really an opportunity not to end the conversation. It's an invitation for dialogue and patient education, which I think is great. I think it's a wonderful opportunity that providers, especially those who conscious, conscientiously object to certain procedures, should see as a as a positive. Um, and so with NCBC, um, NCBC's guidance, um, I was able to help draft a script that I shared with my clinic um, that would go something like this. So say a a patient comes into my clinic and says, you know, 
I like to talk about birth control. You know, I want to switch from birth control to an ID or, you know, whatever. And I could say something along the lines of, I don't provide contraception as part of my medical practice because this medication is not in your best medical interest. The best care, I believe, doesn't involve prescribing you large doses of hormones, which can increase your risk of blood clot, stroke, even breast cancer. And these medications also have a possible abortifacient effect. You know, as your, as your provider, I'm committed to serving you and providing you the best medical care. You know, if this isn't what you're looking for, you are always welcome to seek the care of another provider. So you're reminding patients that they have the ability to seek another opinion, um, seek someone else, but you're also providing this opportunity for dialogue and informed consent and education um, on the potential risk factors or harms of these procedures or, or medications that maybe they've never heard about. Maybe, you know, it's not common to talk about these things. So it's a great opportunity for education. So yeah, you could stick to a script like this. Um, however, some patients, you know, even after hearing the potential risks or harms, they might, you know, understandably ask to be directed to another provider or clinic. And so in order to not refer the patient for these moral immoral procedures, because again, that would be um, cooperating with evil or, you know, um, uh, implicitly willing their reception of the immoral procedure, um, there are several morally legitimate options to what we'd say transfer the care of this patient. So one of the ones that uh, the NCBC's document mentions is, providing the patient with a um, generic list of providers or clinics that um, would be compiled due to criteria such as geographic location or medical specialty. You know, this list would not be compiled because the clinics or providers on the list are known to offer or believed to be willing to offer these services, um, but other criteria. Um, You know, an example, a practical example would be, say, someone's, you know, asking for birth control and the provider says, you know, that's not a service I can provide. They want to, they want to know, um, you know, they want a list of providers. You could, you could a morally licit way to navigate this would be provide the patient with a list of local OBGYNs, but on that list include those who also, you know, who, who only offer NFP. Um, and ultimately that would be the patient's responsibility to do research and pick which clinic that they would uh, be seen at. Another option that was actually um, mentioned as, as a potential option by one of clinic management and then quickly, you know, this person was promoted and no longer really in the conversation, unfortunately, but was, you know, if a patient requests a service I don't provide, you know, recommend that they check with their insurance company for a list of, say, in-network providers or clinics. Um, and so in that way, you know, both those options don't constitute referral or directing a patient to a specific clinic or, um, or provider. So I did, I proposed all these solutions to Providence Management. However, despite these proposals, um, I ended up being asked by Providence Medical Group Human Resources and my clinic leadership to sign a, what they called a performance expectation document. And this form explicitly stated that if a patient requested family planning services or other services that I um, did not provide, that I must refer. So again, big word here. refer to another provider. You know, again, I had gone through the nuances, (laughs) the distinction between transfer of care and referral, and the word referral still ended up in this document. Um, And, you know, I I had been confident, you know, again, working with you and NCBC, I was confident that my proposed solution really met all the criteria, um, both from my perspective and the organization. Um, You know, it was consistent with Catholic moral teaching and the ERDs, and thus consistent with Providence's mission and policies. It emphasized the value of informed consent and patient education. 
It didn't violate my personal conscience, and it respectfully reminded patients of their rights to seek care elsewhere and not ultimately leave patients abandoned, which was the greatest expressed concern. No, but on the side, I was also very confused about the logic of requiring me to refer patients to other Providence providers like their PCP when the patient requested services that the organization as a whole purported to not provide and shouldn't be providing in the first place. So I, there, there was a gap there. So I ended up actually alerting both Providence's ethics department and their mission integration team about this situation. And really, they just said, you know, connect with HR um, and talk about it with them, even though HR was the department that was requiring me to violate my employment contract inside this form. And they'd even uh, refused to even acknowledge the Catholicity of the organization and the contractual expectation that providers adhere to the ERDs in the first place. Yeah. Craziness, craziness. I, I have to say, Megan, you uh, you did such a wonderful explanation of a transfer of care versus referral that I think we need to bring you to one of our two day seminars, and you can do the lecture on it. It's, it, 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 it's it's right there. Uh, the document is, is available on our on our website, and I'm gonna I'm gonna seek to link uh, put a link to that document into the into the notes to this podcast. So hopefully, we'll be able to link to them right from from our website here. Yeah, so, that was so, one of the right. most useful resources for sure. Yeah. So again, with all of that in mind, tell us about the day you were fired by Providence. Yeah. So on um, October 4th of uh, 2019, I had a meeting with Providence Medical Group's chief medical officers who happened to be the regional medical director when I had the conversation about um, not prescribing the morning after pill. So now chief medical officer, as well as the chief human resources officer for Providence Medical Group. And so I had been told by my clinic leadership, my clinic manager and senior manager, that the meeting was to discuss potential solutions um, to resolving this issue on how I would respond to patients if they requested services that I didn't personally provide. So I kind of went into it, you know, not knowing the, um, the, the exact reasons, but I you know, was anticipating an opportunity for dialogue and clarification and questions but this really didn't end up being the case. So pretty soon into the meeting, early on in the meeting, I ended up being instructed by ultimatum of threat and termination to sign this performance expectation document as is. And as you recall, the document mandated that I refer patients to another provider. Not transfer care, but refer. Yeah, um, which is a form of, you know, formal cooperation. And thus, you know, as I had repeatedly expressed very frankly and transparently and respectfully was not a viable solution. You know, so I actually asked the HR director, the HR officer to read aloud the section of my employment contract, which says I must follow the ERDs. I was saying, you know, HR, they're the ones who distribute, you know, are most familiar with the employment contract. She actually refused to read it. And then responded by saying, well, we can fire you without cause. Um, just kind of I was, like out of the blue, I was like, okay, I didn't, this wasn't the dialogue I was expecting. I was just right. wanting us to all be on the same page. So we're operating with the same understanding and information. Um, and then the chief medical officer proceeded to say, you know, well, not only does PMG have a Catholic relationship, but there are legal requirements and PA, uh, sorry, PA, <laughs> Providence Medical Group has a relationship to the state and an obligation to patients. So when I asked if there was any way that we could discuss alternative language to the 
performance expectations document. You know, it wasn't going to refer. The word referral could not be in there. I was told that I did not have the option of editing the performance expectations document. And it was stated to me, if you are not able to refer, we need to end your employment contract. Again, the word kept coming up. So, you know, obviously I couldn't sign this form. It violated my conscience, my faith, and my providence employment contract and my contractual expectations. Um, So at that time when I refused, I said, I can't do this. I'm still open to talking about it, but I was told we're going to pass this. I was given a pre-printed, pre-signed 90-day terminate letter. Um, So, you know, again, I walked into the meeting having been told you're going to have this dialogue, discuss potentials, you know, you know, they didn't explicitly say dialogue, but discuss potential solutions of how to move forward and meet everyone's needs and address everyone's concerns. And here I'm presented with a pre, a pre-printed, pre-signed intent to terminate letter. And, um, you know, the strange thing was when I was reviewing the intent to terminate letter, because, you know, again, detail-oriented type A, um, you know, big implications here. I was reading through the document and it stated that I was fired without cause. Um, and this really just didn't make any sense to me because I had literally just been explicitly told multiple times throughout the duration of the meeting that I would be fired because I refused to refer patients to other providers for services I didn't personally provide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at in the end of the meeting, I was instructed to follow up with my clinic manager to collect my things from the clinic as soon as possible. Wow. So Isaac, back to you. Uh, what do you recall about the day Megan was fired, and were you surprised? Well, Megan and I had anticipated that this meeting was related to the services Megan was objecting to providing. Uh, so I wasn't surprised about that part. But um, we, we, well, we talked about what the meeting would be over breakfast that morning, uh, and I'm pretty sure Megan, out of the blue, said you don't think they're going to fire me, do you? And I <laughs> I quickly dismissed her concern because I thought, oh, at this point, it wouldn't make any sense. It looked really bad for them to fire her at this point as there had been no, uh, no, at least not very much dialogue and movement towards a viable solution. Uh, so after breakfast, I went to work and I got a call from Megan during her expected meeting time. She told me... Uh, that they were going to fire her because she was not agreeing to sign the performance expectations document, insisting that she refer. Mm-hmm. I responded with basically, well, at first stunned silence. And uh, then I suggested, well, have you mentioned your employment contract and talked about, you know, alternatives such as transfer of care. And Megan said, that nope, she was given no opportunity for dialogue and that management specifically said there would be no negotiating this and that Megan had already wasted enough time and resources on the topic. Interesting. So I, yeah, to me, the choice seemed pretty clear. Uh, She, she wasn't about to sign away her right to her own conscience. So that meant she needed to refuse the sign. She needed to refuse to sign the form Uh, which Providence said would lead to her termination. Obviously, this had considerable implications for Megan's career and the well-being of our family. And so Uh, uh, when I voiced voiced my support, Megan said, well, she wanted to make sure I understood the impact before moving forward. And I didn't hesitate to reassure her that I would 
support her making the decision. And I knew that one way or another, God would provide for our family. Uh, you know, and I was, I was surprised, obviously, that the organization was bold enough and imprudent enough, in my opinion, to explicitly tell Megan that they were firing her for her refusal to not provide or refer patients for procedures that Megan viewed as immoral. I mean, not only do healthcare workers such as Megan have le legally protected religious liberty and conscience protections rights, but uh, Providence also had required Megan as a condition for employment from the outset to conform her practice to Catholic moral teaching as stated in her employment contract. Right. I didn't understand the grounds they thought they had at this point. All right. So back to Megan. So Megan, after you were fired, what steps did you take and what was your correspondence with Providence? So prior to my termination, I had been in contact actually with the Thomas More Society, a Catholic religious liberty law firm, and they continued to provide legal counsel um, after I was terminated from employment at Providence. I also ended up writing a series of letters that included Providence executives, um, several of their CEOs, actually sent a letter to the Providence St. Joseph Health Board of Sponsors, the Mission Integration Department, Ethics Department, and our local archbishop. And I asked Providence for clarification on how it was justified that I had been fired due to my insistence on not violating my conscience, my contract, and Catholic faith at a Catholic healthcare system. And really to this question, I, I received no explicit clarification or answer, like I said, to this specific question. Actually, in one of the letters that I received during this time of correspondence um, from Providence, um, I received a letter from one of their Providence Health and Services Oregon executives, and I was told that Providence made the decision to terminate my contract because my decision to not refer patients was not an accommodation they could provide because the organization had a responsibility to not interfere with a patient seeking treatment that is legally available and medically appropriate. So wait, I thought I was fired without cause. Um, so again, continued mixed messages even after I had been um, terminated from the organization. All right. Now I know there's legal issues here and, and we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to broach on areas that we can't go to, but to the extent that you can talk about it, how were your personal claims against Providence reconciled? Yeah. So back in March, um, you know, with the help of the Thomas More Society and some other um, awesome legal counsel, um, I was able to settle my personal claims uh, against Providence. Um, and so not, uh, in effect, not pursuing litigation um, against what uh, them for what transpired, transpired. And really, you know, I've had a lot of people say like, why didn't you, you know, why not pursue litigation? Why not sue? But really, you know, in assessing what my goals were after leaving the organization being fired, um, really what was most important to me was being able to preserve my ability to tell my story. Um, Which you're doing today. Which I'm doing today. <laughs> so there you go. You know, um, God brings good out of really difficult, unfortunate, mind-boggling experiences. Yeah. I've repeatedly been reminded of this, and so here, here we are having this conversation. But really, that was my goal, um, and I'll go into that a little bit later too. But um, that that was, I felt like, the best avenue to be able to accomplish that. 
you know, prior to settling my personal claims, um, we had filed a complaint with the Department of Health and Human Human Services um, uh, Office of Civil Rights as well. Yeah. And I also want to mention, too, that um, the National Catholic Register and the Catholic News Agency have done stories on you. And you've also uh, appeared on the Catholic Medical Association's Dr. Doctor podcast. So this, this uh, you know, our Bioethics on Air podcast is not the, not the only forum by which you've been able to, to get this story out. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's probably the – this is you've had the most time to get the story out in, in, yeah. in this podcast. And, and that's what we wanted to do is to, is to really get it out there and and let people hear your story and, and see what's going on. So, all right. So you mentioned the um, Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights. Uh, you, a, a complaint was filed with them. What's the status of that complaint? Yeah. So I had been in contact with uh, one of their lawyers and you know shared my experience with her. And you know she did express concern that uh, Providence Medical Group or Providence Health and Services might be participating in religious discrimination while receiving federal funding, which um, is a no-go. Um, and so I was told um, that the Office of Civil Rights would be in uh, contact with me if they needed further assistance in a potential investigation. So that's kind of where we left it. All right. So with this whole story and and, and everything involved and all the complexity and, and, and the heartache and everything else going on, what would you say to a newly minted clinician who wants to practice medicine in accord with his or her faith, but runs into a healthcare system, even a Catholic healthcare system that does not allow this to happen. So I would say, first off, education is crucial, you know, steeping yourself in the teachings of the church, you know, regarding the sanctity of life and bioethics um, is important. Familiarizing yourself with the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services um, I'm, I'm surprised how many Catholic health care professionals I've encountered who have never heard of the ethical and religious directives. Um, they are a wealth of information um, and really do provide authoritative guidance in these um, difficult areas. And then also familiarizing yourself with resources such as the Nath- National Catholic Bioethics Center. You hey, know, here we are. Recommended to everyone. Uh, and <laughs> has been seriously, one of the biggest resources and sources. Um, uh, of support for me in navigating these difficult situations that I really never anticipated encountering. And so I would say, you know, not only for healthcare providers or um, workers, but also, um, you know, I've been seeing the praises of NCBC's consult services for patients and loved ones of patients who might um, have questions about various treatments or methods of care that are being recommended to them, but they just doesn't sit right. And they, they want some guidance on how to, um, navigate or access care that's consistent with the beauty and truth of our faith. I would also say um, it's really important to educate yourself on your conscience rights, religious liberty rights, and your legal Absolutely. It's both state-specific and federal because they can, um, they can differ. And also, you know, if there are concerns um, at all, I would say, um, you know, connect early on with a religious liberty law firm um, they're an invaluable resource. Highly recommend the Thomas More Society. There are multiple other great ones, including the Alliance for Defending Freedom. Um, and so connecting, like I said, early on in the process um, with potential concerns. And then a formal religious accommodation can also help with your legal protections um, as well. I, I would also say I'm kind of more encouraging um, terms, you know, take heart. You know, the beauty and truth of our Catholic faith 
is consistent with science and what is best for the human person, including our patients. You're not alone. um, And God is faithful. Don't forget that too. Yeah. I want to just uh, uh, underscore what you just said, because we do get calls from medical professionals around the country in similar situations to you. Actually, I should say most of them are working, they'll be Catholics working in non- Catholic healthcare systems. And they're running across these challenges. And one of the things that I always tell them is you are not alone. Uh, please don't think you're alone because there are a lot of a lot of people like you, Megan, um, who are out there and are you're standing up for your faith and 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 you know that support is there. So please don't think if anybody listening to this, you feel like you're on an island, um, please don't. You know, feel free to contact us and we will support you um, in any way we can. Megan, what's your goal in sharing your experiences of being fired by uh, a Catholic healthcare system for your commitment to practicing medicine as a Catholic? Why are you doing this? Yeah. So, you know, I hope to shine light on the assault on human life that's taking place in healthcare in general, even in some of our Catholic institutions. Not only is the fact that the sanctity of human life being undermined in our Catholic healthcare systems unfortunate, the fact that it's being promoted and tolerated, you know, in my opinion, is scandalous and really unacceptable. Now, in addition, not only are some Catholic hospitals providing services contrary to their Catholic identity and Catholic moral teaching, but as is evidenced by my story, a Catholic provider might even be fired for insisting on practicing according to their Catholic faith and conscience within a Catholic healthcare system. You know, I think it's important that we um, ask questions, that we hold institutions accountable, you know, remaining prayerful and hopeful for conversion and that these organizations can return to their Catholic identity, which does acknowledge the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. You know, another important thing is, you know, if you do have concerns, um, you raise those concerns to your local bishop. A call for change and transparency, including Catholic hospital adherence to Catholic teaching and ethical and religious directives. You know, one of my big goals, too, is um, to be a source of support for other healthcare workers who might find themselves in a similar situation, either at a secular institution or even a Catholic one. And I also hope to raise awareness of the many resources, bioethical, theological, and legal that are out there um, uh, and available for providing assistance and support. I would say kind of, um, you know, I think it was Isaac mentioned uh, this quote by Mother Teresa that really I think is relevant and beautiful that I want to share with your listeners. But um, she once said, God has not called me to be successful. He has called me to be faithful. So I just find this so beautiful and comforting because it reminds us, you know, no matter how chaotic everything around us might be, how confusing, um, that really our task is straightforward. We're called to be faithful to God with what is in our purview, whether this is in our personal, family, or professional life. Yeah. There have been a lot of words of wisdom so far in this in this podcast, but uh, I'd like to conclude it by by giving you the final word, Megan. What uh, final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? So I would say it's pretty simple. Remain hopeful and prayerful. Uh, you know, um, like I said, God is faithful. He has a plan. And um, I'll just end by saying, you know, um, asking for the intercession of Blessed Emily Gamelin, who is the um, foundress of the Sisters of Providence. So Blessed Emily Gamelin, pray for us. Amen. Megan Kreft and Isaac Kreft, who I believe is probably taking care of Justin right now. (laughs) Yes, you're correct. (laughs) (laughs) So Megan and Isaac, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. It was fantastic. 
Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed it too. God bless. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on bioethics on air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J-Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcast, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. That's how Megan got involved with us in the first place. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening today, and may God's peace be with you.